Hi, Diana, and welcome to Policy Talks uh, on behalf of iAffairs Canada. Um, we're really happy to have you here and really excited that we finally got to do this. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, hiccups in between, but here we are. Um, so uh, for anybody who's uh, who will be listening to this, um, I had the pleasure to work with uh, Diana during my time um, at the NATO Communications and Information Agency. And um, I will let Diana do her introduction. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, AK, and thank you to Policy Talk uh, for inviting me uh, to uh, this podcast. Uh, um, uh, as uh, AK has, uh, has actually uh, introduced me already a little bit, um, I'm Diana, I'm Italian, uh, and I work at the NATO Communication and Information Agency at NATO headquarters uh, in Brussels. Uh, my academic, uh, since actually, I have to say, since uh, 11 years. Um, so. Uh, my academic background is in international relations. Um, I've completed my master's degree actually in 2009 while I was still in Italy and then I came um, to Brussels actually because uh, because I had the opportunity to uh, have having been selected for some, some internships. So, uh, one was at NATO, uh, other few ones were in, uh, in the EU institutions and built my career uh, from that stage. Age actually, and uh, I'm still actually involved with university uh, because I'm a student um, at the University of St Andrews in, in the United Kingdom, and I'm uh, currently uh, undertaking a research degree uh, in terrorism and political violence. I was always uh, actually attracted, I would say attracted to terrorism, but it might might be misinterpreted, attracted uh, to discover why people engage into violence. Yes. So. <laughs> So I wanted to study uh, this a little bit more and uh, also like a women involvement into, uh, into terrorism and political balance, which is un underexplored uh, nowadays. Um, I'm also a member of uh, Women in International Security. We do aim, it's an organization actually, it's a global organization that aims at um, uh, enhancing uh, women's voices uh, in the international debates on security and defense. And I'm a fellow, uh, Marshall Memorial Fellow for the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I've just uh, completed actually my fellowship uh, this um, spring um, in March uh, 2022, from March to April. Uh, it was a, a very enlightening program because I had the opportunity to travel to the United States for uh, exactly 24 days and engage with different communities um, on security and defense teams, but also uh, way beyond this, uh, engaging in, uh, in uh, citizenship, how you um, govern effectively a city and, uh, you know, teams uh, of racism and discrimination and social policies. And it was so enlightening uh, for me because it emerged uh, the way I uh, was looking at international relations uh, actually in the past. So um, it was very, very, um, it was invaluable, to be honest. And um, yeah, I think I've said it. Um, I've said a lot already. So um, yeah, I'll let you continue with the, the conversation with her today. Well, thank you for the introduction, Diana. It's uh, I, I remember when like the first time that we spoke and we we got coffee. Um, you were just you were telling me all the things that you were involved with, and I was was like. How does she have the time to do all of these things? But it's amazing that um, even after your like even after your studies, you're continuing to um, be involved and be passionate about uh, the 
the things that you are passionate about in terms of international affairs, um, uh, uh, women's rights and empowerment um, in the ways that are important to you. I think that's really cool. Um, I think that uh, one thing that we had, I mean, that given that we were um, the the first time that we caught up, uh, you had just come back from your fellowship, and you were giving me um, just some insights into sort of the things that you learned and and how it was. So, um, would you mind maybe just sharing some of some of the things, or just going into some more detail about you know how it was being at the fellowship, what your experiences were like, um, and I know you also had said um, that there's an opportunity also that is available to like um students yes. that that's for the fellowship yes. as well so maybe we can like maybe you can elaborate on that as well that would be great sure absolutely my pleasure uh, so the fellowship for me uh, it was actually it is uh, the german fellowship it's a, a leadership accelerator program so mm-hmm. um they require you to have seven years of leadership um in different during your career but uh, when I actually um, applied uh, the very first time and I was lucky enough to be selected I said oh my god now they're gonna want me I've never been a CEO of a company or like I've never been like you know um, higher ranking like I'm not like a a top manager or a director of a department so how am I going to prove them that I'm a leader and then uh, you know I, I was still thinking about leadership in terms of status and rank and uh, this is absolutely the opposite of what the program is about. Um, mm-hmm. What was enlightening uh, for me actually was that you can be a leader at whichever stage uh, of your career, whatever you're doing, uh, as long as you you are uh, like uh, setting a vision for the people you are working with or empowering others or um, for me a leader um, is somebody that people want to follow. Uh, without uh, um, uh, this being actually this person being at the at the top of the organization, yeah. So it can be a leader in whichever uh, position you are. And during the fellowship, um, I have met so many leaders uh, like around throughout the U.S. because we traveled actually to five different locations, and uh, one was for me Washington D.C., Chicago. Uh, Spanish Fork, uh, Los Angeles, and um, back to New York, and then I flew back to Europe. Uh, but I met people who were engaged at the government level to promote social policies for people who were discriminated, and this happened in Chicago, for example. I met uh, in Chicago as well people who had committed crime. They were living in the uh, well, in sort of ghettos uh, around the city, and they were helping. Um, young um, guys who were getting involved into violence to get out of that uh, sort of path. Um, they were uh, actually um, involved into violence before, so those people had a journey uh, also of forgiveness um, that was uh, very, very important. It was a, such a transformational journey um, because if you can imagine, like a person has been um, involved into violence on the street or gangs, uh, how, what, what kind of journey this person has done to uh, sort of help others to get out of this path. So it was, it was really like uh, enlightening. Those people shared a lot of stories with us. And we met also with the, with church leaders. Uh, I spent five days with the uh, Mormons uh, representative in the U.S. Um, 
in that community uh, where leaders who were, uh, you know, sort of tackling um, issues that uh, young people were experiencing uh, or mental health issues, getting them closer uh, to finding uh, their own like journey in life or their own trajectory. So it was it was really, uh, really enlightening. And, uh, and of course, in LA, I visited and this was also very interesting because we met with different government official uh, officials as well. We met with the governor um, and we visited this uh, homeboy. It was it was a sort of a, a bakery actually that was employing people who were involved in two gangs uh, in LA uh, in the past uh, and now they wanted to uh, draw a different journey for their own mm-hmm. for their own lives. So uh, um, they were getting involved into um, it was a, a, an experiment of criminal justice reform, which for me was very interesting because those guys uh, were just different people, were just so motivated to. You know, bake cakes and like you know, they saw their future, like they saw a bright future uh, that was not into selling drugs or killing people on the street, like, and it was totally different from what they were doing before. So, and also in this way, they processed their traumas, uh, traumas they had in the past, and um, so uh, for me, it was really like interesting to see uh, uh, that those people were becoming leaders of their community to take out people of you know, uh, gun violence or like violence on the street, um, committing violence. So it was really like, um, really uh, enlightening if I said. Yeah, I can imagine that it was very like just seeing people from like different walks of life and the the perspectives that you were able to gain just going across the country must have been like, you know, the the situation in LA must have been different, say from the situation in Chicago or like the, the different intricacies that surround like the situations that people are in must have been just very different for you to see as somebody who I guess hasn't been or, or grown up in the, the North American hemisphere because I, I know, you know, in, in, from an international relations perspective, I just, I feel mm-hmm. like the issues that that we deal with sometimes across the ocean are very different from uh, what issues are, you know, in different parts of Eastern Europe or different parts of Western mm-hmm. Europe. So it must have been yeah. quite the, the stark contrast in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, w- uh, what makes uh, transatlantic relationships work, it's um, to uh, understand how diverse we are and how we can work together. Um, although we're diverse, and we-, we maintain and keep our diversity, but we can make it something that uh, enriches us um, mm-hmm. it overall, like, um, and we can leverage that. And, uh, of course, like, I think the core of... Um, stronger uh, transatlantic relationships is uh, actually leveraging the diversity um, being able to uh, sit at a table and find consensus uh, among people who have grown up uh, in different contexts and face different issues yep so i i i definitely think that that leads in very well or segues into your role um within the nato uh, communications and information agency because um i know that a, a lot of your job uh requires some uh, very specific uh stakeholder management uh and uh building those relationships across the agency and across the the alliance um in general um so like just maybe um sort of would you mind just going into a little bit of detail about um, how you 
landed into your role within the agency and um, how your time has been there so far because you've been there for quite a while and uh, you're very good at your job so <laughs> it would be nice to know thank you, thank you uh, I've actually uh, I was my first job at the agency was absolutely not this so I had to build my way up to out to this job of course I started as a as an intern uh, actually I was not even in the agency I was at the Italian delegation to NATO and then uh, I transitioned uh, to the agency but uh, I started in the office of the legal advisor I was helping uh, the legal office with all the agreements we have with different nations yeah. so it was totally different uh, from what I'm doing right now uh, um, uh, actually I was managing the relationship uh, with those nations so it was a little bit building up on to this uh, actually role that I'm uh, that I'm uh, that I hold right now so right now I'm uh, responsible for the strategic um, actually the political engagement portfolio and the stratcom portfolio for, for the agency so uh, in practice what does it mean it means that uh, I'm responsible for all the um, uh, GM cost and our leadership team engagement, strategic level engagement with the uh, with the nation officials that we interact with, uh, and NATO HQ and beyond. Uh, for example, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, uh, national entities. I'm responsible for all the content for the capital visits. Um, we are preparing. My team is preparing. Uh, RGM and cost for all these high-level conferences, such as, uh, for example, the Munich Security Conference and other um, big external uh, flagship events. And uh, uh, stakeholder engagement is also it is important to uh, maybe uh, highlight uh, this. Uh, it's aligned uh, with our uh, strategy uh, for the agency. What do we want to achieve actually in the next five year and five years, and how uh, you make sure that you interact. Uh, with the right network of stakeholders uh, that they help fulfill actually the objective uh, of the strategy actually. So the two, the two things, uh, the strategic planning and stakeholder engagement go hand in hand actually. They don't look, they, they must not look uh, disconnected. Um, of course, like the objective, the overarching objective of stakeholder engagement is to uh, improve uh, the reputation, uh, the reputation of the agency, and build uh, actually the brand uh, of the agency. Uh, but I also uh, manage the Stratcom portfolio, which is which locate what we do uh, into internal uh, stakeholders. Um, so we make sure that the narrative about us is framed uh, constructively and strategically, uh, that people do understand uh, what we do, uh, that we can speak with one voice, um, that we can uh, communicate our successes, but also our challenges to uh, stakeholders in a constructive and strategic way. Uh, so uh, both are key uh, to uh, stakeholder engagement as a whole, as a function, because uh, Stratcom is also a, it's called a non-military instrument of power, uh, as we define it here in NATO, but if you think broadly, it is an invaluable uh, foreign policy tool. Um, it contributes to emphasize what is important for the organization or the nation. Uh, it creates the brand recognition and this in turn adds, uh, of course, uh, credibility to, to the organization. Oh, okay. 
wow uh it sounds like um i guess on a high level that there's there's a lot of things that you have to look at from like a strategic portfolio perspective in terms of what it is that we you want to achieve but um just like i guess on the ground on, on a day-to-day basis what what does your day look like i know that obviously it's different uh, there's a lot of moving parts um but what what in general you know uh, starts you off and ends your day yeah in practice <laughs> so uh, for example right now i'm working on uh, the spectrum narrative for the agency so i'm coordinating this uh, big document of uh, oh sorry then i think um, you had you just cut off sorry uh let me see if i get you back hello yes i think you're back hello oh can you hear hello. me okay yes yes i think the connection is a little bit uh dodgy but we'll we'll see what we can do sorry um so you were saying on a day-to-day basis uh you're working on a stratcom book or a yeah. guide or strategy yeah, sorry exactly. yep. yeah it's, it's a we call it the stratcom narrative it's, it's a playbook basically um the stratcom playbook for example uh, to give an example of what i'm doing like this last uh, few days so i'm coordinating this uh playbook with the different uh, SMEs within the agency so that we have different chapters uh, talking about what we do in the agency and different activities or initiatives we're managing. For example, how we support uh, NATO in countering terrorists, uh, how um, we support Ukraine, uh, for example, during this crisis, or um, what does the agency do to deliver digital transformation for NATO? Uh, how is uh, this IT modernization project? Uh, what is it? What is it about? How is it going on? Um, and then uh, we are developing. I'm developing messages for every one uh, of these uh, like chapters. Yeah. So I'm building like a coherent narrative uh, along the whole chapters. Uh, so that we can all as an agency speak with one voice and deliver messages to our stakeholders which are coherent and fact uh, fact based because one of the uh, actually let's say uh, strategic mistakes um, of uh, not having a stratcom narrative is that everybody has its own messages about this um, when interacts with stakeholders that do not about this and that activity that do not contribute necessarily to uh, enhancing the reputation of the agency <laughs> actually they damage it sometimes so right. it is important to have this playbook uh, whether it's uh, actually uh, devoted to internal stakeholders uh, so I'm building this I'm coordinating this document with all the agency elements organizational elements so I'm picking up the phone and, and I'm calling everyone saying okay I'm writing this on JISR like joint intelligence surveillance and secure and uh, Joint Intelligent Reconnaissance Surveillance. Yeah. Um, so, can you tell me more about um, you know, what you're doing area? And so, I'm, I'm actually drafting five, ten messages. It doesn't have to be too long. Um, and then uh, I'm coordinating all the other pieces uh, until the document is actually uh, ready to uh, be then sent um, to GM for approval. So, this is what I'm focusing right now. At the same time, uh, we do have other Stratcom products on Focus and Gone, which are infographics and the flashcards and the, mm-hmm. uh, that are to be distributed to our external stakeholders. And those are just a quick view of that particular project or that particular activity um, that can be handed over. It has a nice design, so I'm working with our design team uh, to make it look nice. 
and uh, we deliver it to the person as a handout for meetings that the GM and costs are having so that it can stay with the person and you know it gives you a very quick overview of what we're doing in that area so I think this is also uh, important and um, I'm preparing all the messages for all GM's meetings with the uh, ambassadors and mayor reps so I'm receiving um, you know notifications and this is uh, not being uh, for the time being not be in a very predictable activity because I'm actually <laughs> receiving emails like oh GM tomorrow is meeting with the ambassador of Slovakia can you prepare the messages so <laughs> from the Stratcom I do prepare the tailored messages for GM uh, for that particular meeting uh, having in mind the objective of that meeting and what we want to uh, get out of it I do coordinate also with the, the delegation of Slovakia, for example, uh, to understand if they have other uh, questions uh, in mind that they want to address to the GM so that it doesn't look surprised when he sits with the ambassador. Um, oh, and this okay. is, yeah, and this is another area as well. And at the same time, uh, sometimes we're developing also some um, targeted campaigns and um, working with the comms team to develop the campaign for our anniversary, which is in July. Uh, so I've worked in the past also on uh, diversity and inclusion campaigns that we have run uh, in the agency. So it, it, this is a very focused campaign uh, that takes place in a particular month, for example, and we do develop different products, communication product campaign. Right. Um, oh, sorry, I lost you there again. Sorry, so sorry. Um, would you just mind repeating that last sentence? Uh, I think sorry. the connection had cut out again. My apologies. I'm not sure. I'm <laughs> no not worries sure at all. So, yeah, no problem. No problem. Uh, so uh, I uh, sometimes develop also uh, more targeted campaigns. Like um, we do, we do have uh, a particular one coming up for uh, to celebrate our uh, anniversary, ten um, years anniversary in uh, July. Uh, so we will develop Great. a series of initiatives, yeah. <laughs> a series of initiatives and products uh, to inform, uh, to celebrate the 10 year, uh, 10 years the agency is existing actually. And um, it, we developed, uh, I developed different campaigns also more targeted in the past, uh, Stratcom and communication. Uh, I'm more in charge of the Stratcom, the comms team is in charge of the communication aspects, but um, to, for example, celebrate diversity and inclusion or uh, International Women's Day um, and mm -hmm. so on. So it's a very uh, diverse role, actually. Yeah, wow. It sounds like there's a lot going on, but a lot of very, I guess, interesting coordination that you have to do with a lot of people for a lot of different, um, different just initiatives. Like, you know, it looks like, you know, prepping GM for something versus uh, getting out messaging for like yeah. uh, a woman's day initiative let's say it would probably be entirely different tasks so I, i'm assuming you'll you would have to have like a bird's eye view of all the different stakeholders that are involved the people that you have to communicate with the people that you have to consider so i guess like um in that in that regard like how do you how would you go about like effectively capturing and managing different stakeholders for different initiatives especially because it varies so much in in your role absolutely Absolutely, and uh, this is a very interesting question, actually, um, because we do interact with a, a multitude of stakeholders every day uh, within the NATO ecosystem, but also beyond. Uh, there's a team who's in charge of our relationship with industry only, so uh, because we interact with many um, commercial actors as well. 
So every stakeholder is different and uh, is important to us, of course, in different ways. Um, so there are stakeholders, for example, we want to build a partnership with. Uh, there are stakeholders that would like to uh, keep informed on certain activities. There are stakeholders that are important for us because uh, we want to gain uh, their support into um, endorsing that particular policy or that particular project. Um, I'll move like a certain topic forward uh, NATO, like for example, NATO digitalization and stakeholders that help us achieving our object the objective of our strategic plan. So every stakeholder is actually different and has a different role in our mapping. So we do have the map uh, of stakeholders and every stakeholder has a different role. So we categorize the stakeholders uh, with different categories like influence, gain support, uh, keep informed, shape, um, maintain a relationship, uh, resolve an issue. Um, so they have different roles, uh, different effects on our strategy, but um, it is important that those stakeholders are also ranked according to the importance they have in the fulfillment of our goals and that we assign an influence effect and uh, we identify what we want to achieve with that particular uh, stakeholder. And this helps us prioritizing the different stakeholders and craft also uh, tailored uh, stakeholder engagement campaigns uh, so that they are uh, actually designed uh, for that particular stakeholders and what we want to achieve with that one. Oh, okay. It sounds like um, I, I, it sounds like definitely some like legwork has to go into the process of like identifying and, and capturing stakeholders effectively because I can understand that especially in a or correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume, especially in like a political environment, like missing specific stakeholders can have um, very interesting consequences, I'm sure. I mean, I, I kind of saw it a little bit, you know, uh, in the hallways, screaming and yelling, but you know, nothing like, I guess I've just, I'm sure you see it from a different side as well. Um, I want to ask just in that context, I, you know, in, in I, the one thing that has been looming um, and I'm sure has just been a huge, huge thing that you've had to deal with as well in your role is um, uh, the war that's happening right now. Um, and uh, just sort of in, in the context of that, uh, how have you how have you just been able to manage stakeholders effectively? How have we how have you made sure that, you know, um, the right people are being spoken to and that uh, the the objectives are the, the yeah the these meetings are achieving the objectives that that you know the alliance is hoping to to achieve yeah. um in the context of the the, the war yeah the, the the war um the war in ukraine actually uh russia's invasion of ukraine um it is um actually uh, a very um uh, hectic time uh for nato uh, first, um, we are supporting, the agency is supporting uh, NATO in managing the Ukraine war, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. There's different uh, uh, declinations of how this should be designed, but uh, from the very uh, beginning, we have been involved into um, uh, the task force uh, that in NATO is uh, actually leading those efforts and putting all the stakeholders together. So we are doing our part. And uh, from the very beginning, uh, NATO NATO has urged to halt the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the violation of Ukraine's territoriality and the idea of what is happening actually in Ukraine, and the urge Russia to engage seriously in the peace talks. Um, yep. Now we're aware uh, NATO allies are 
being to Ukraine and also in Russia uh, where the uh so sorry Diana I think um I think the connection's cutting out again um give me sorry maybe we'll get you back in a second yes uh yeah we can repeat yes yes that would be great but I think I don't know if you're yes I think you're back now I see you again great uh yeah if if you if you wouldn't mind repeating that'd be great <laughs> absolutely so uh, I was saying at the beginning that we at the agency has a role actually in supporting NATO managing the the Russia Ukraine war we have been part actually of the task force that is uh actually being established in NATO to uh put uh, every stakeholder like all the stakeholders together to manage the conflict and uh you know define our roles uh in uh supporting uh, actually the alliance uh in this uh, in this effort Uh, NATO uh, from its side has been uh has been urging Russia to halt the Ukrainian invasion and uh, the violation of uh, uh its territorial integrity and sovereignty uh and the brutality committed in Ukraine and uh, seriously engage actually in peace talks uh I'm uh, I'm sure you're aware that NATO allies are providing bilateral support to Ukraine and uh via the sanctions uh imposing heavy costs on Russia of course the nato there's a lot of discussions and you have seen maybe the latest uh, ministerial meeting uh, press conferences that the secretary general of nato has actually uh, released recently um basically nato allies are discussing what more uh, nato can do for ukraine and uh, also for partners actually within that region that are vulnerable to russian uh, threats and, and influence so And although NATO is supporting actually uh, the uh, efforts to find a diplomatic solution for this conflict, I'm sure you're aware that NATO cannot intervene um, because yeah. Ukraine is a partner, it's not a NATO member, so the Article 5 cannot be activated. Um, but in terms of how do you manage your communication during this uh, very complex geopolitical context, I think it is important to um, make sure that uh, communication is actually clear, Uh, that is transparent, that is timely, uh, and there is fact-based. Uh, it, it is a very sensitive context, and the way communication we communicate it can have a specific uh, effect on the whole war, in a way. It can trigger uh, a nuclear war or whatever, so it is very, very important um, during a crisis, and you can employ the crisis communication toolbox here, but um, to consider also the impact of uh, this information and uh, so to engage actually in communicating what you're doing for Ukraine or uh, in the mid, in the middle of the conflict to engage uh, proactively to correct the false or fabricated narratives around the conflict the aim at manipulating uh, and changing people's perceptions around the conflict uh, it is important to avoid leaving a communication vacuum Uh, in this area and proactively uh, spread the message to make sure that NATO's role is understood by various audiences, including the yep. public opinion. So yep. the agency will make sure that we do align uh, with the communication lines to take that uh, our uh, the NATO public diplomacy uh, division is actually producing so that our communication is actually aligned uh, to uh, the lines to take that they're uh, actually yeah uh, developed. Great. 
Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like uh, there's a lot of factors or moving factors that you would have to consider, especially in the context of like an emergency or a crisis, you know. Um, yeah. You were talking a little bit about the, uh, the crisis communication or the crisis management toolbox, sorry. Um, it, would you mind just elaborating a little bit more on, on what that is and what that means? Yeah, uh, it's actually um, how uh, you effectively communicate uh, in, in a crisis. Uh, yep. basically where uh, you know the communication uh, landscape is hyper populated by different actors uh, that do have a say uh, on that particular crisis or they project some particular views um, depends on who they're aligned with so in this context I think uh, again it is absolutely critical to uh, respond proactively uh, to um, also the way you develop your news stories but to respond proactively uh, to uh, events uh, so avoid leaving a communication vacuum because if you leave it other people other actors are going to exploit it uh, not necessarily saying uh, what you actually and to say uh, it might be sorry Dana, um, uh, we're, we're cutting out again you can hear um, me still, right uh, I don't think I have you back completely that's yet. weird <laughs> maybe now i think there's like some red bars beside your name so i think the connection might be a little bit dodgy today i'm, I'm not sure but that's okay we'll keep it moving sorry what were you saying yeah. um uh there was a, the last couple of sentences i think we missed um because you had cutouts yes i was talking about maybe um to avoid leaving a communication vacuum uh, and uh, yes. proactively respond uh, actually to events as they unfold during a crisis so make you ensure that you have um, that your communication is clear transparently uh, timely and fact-based and I think those are the necessary ingredients of the crisis communication toolbox actually great yeah um, it definitely seems like uh, remembering all these things I mean you've been in your role for so long so obviously it, it it probably comes to second nature to you, but um, maybe in the context of, of the war or just in your general day to day, what are like some of the greatest challenges that you see in communicating and, and collaborating to achieve results, especially in an international organization that has to deal with or, or work through, well, challenges Intensive. and understatements, but challenge, like challenges like this, um, on, a, on something that impacts so many lives, I guess, is kind of what I'm trying to get at. How, how, how did you, how do you sort of, how, what challenges do you see? What are, what are some barriers or, or roadblocks for you? Yeah, I have to say uh, it's a very good uh, question, uh, AK, because uh, we do, uh, we are in an international organization which is composed of 30 different nations. Uh, so every nation has its own strategy. Every nation has its own agenda, is, and it's absolutely normal. Um, so um, I think the greatest challenge in, in such an environment is to build consensus around uh, what we're going to do for Ukraine, for example. And it's not yep. easy because uh, there are member states who feel threatened the most because there are um, because of their proximity to Russia. Uh, member states are threatened the less uh, because they're not they do not have that proximity to Russia, so they feel the threat. Um, they perceive the threat in a different way. 
so maybe some states are more ready to adopt certain measures, some states are less ready to adopt certain measures, but this is absolutely normal uh, when you are um, working with 30 different nations. Uh, so I think this is the greatest challenge in context of crisis like this, like how to build a unified uh, narrative and a unified position in NATO has been absolutely, um, I think, very effective in this crisis because NATO has appeared as a very, uh, very united uh, organization. I think unity has been uh, the greatest, uh, actually, success of NATO during uh, this crisis. Um, I think the other, uh, actually, challenge that I would see is uh, uh, you know, have, uh, the absence of a strategy, um, especially in communication and collaboration at a high level like this. Um, so having the lack of a vision and a goal, um, I think having a vision and a goal is actually fundamental. Um, you are familiar, I'm sure, with NATO uh, setting its vision for the future right now, which yeah. is the NATO 2030. Yeah. Uh, it's a, one of the greatest deliverable of the um, uh, Madrid, the upcoming Madrid uh, summit, uh, yeah. which will be held on, on at the end of June uh, 2022, so this summer. Yeah. And I would say another, um, another challenge is the lack of innovation, and especially in our area, in a communication or a strategic engagement. Uh, uh, we do live in a digital world and innovating is actually key. Uh, communication landscape, as I said, I think is hyper-populated and very competitive right now. Um, yes. You must ensure that your voice is heard among other million, uh, million voices and uh, you have to use innovative tools to reach out to non-traditional audiences as well. Uh, and um, the last, um, I think, challenge that I would see is uh, actually um, how you can focus on value because you want to engage with so many different stakeholders uh, but you have to i think focus your campaigns on value and what you know know your audience and, and choose the right communication platforms because not every audience is is the same so uh this shows that communication is uh, actually not crafted accidentally but uh, simply that you care uh, about your audiences yep sure wow that, i think um you captured it really well um, at a very high level. Uh, it's I think it must come out of just years of like knowing and, and running into the same roadblocks. I think especially like I know with NATO Digital Workplace, there's some conversations around innovation that are taking place and, and whatnot. But you're right in that it's uh, the, the technology is a complement to like a communication strategy, you know, um, and uh, it's it's nice that you kind of have that, you know, forward thinking on it's hopefully that will help inform future stakeholder and, and uh, communication plans, uh, I guess, on a broader level. Um, uh, we um, just to, we, we do have to wrap up soon, but um, I just wanted to um, ask um, what your advice would be for um, individuals who want to work in uh, communications and uh, stakeholder engagements um, within international um, organizations. Um, I know here's a good time also probably to talk about um, some of the opportunities that are within NATO um, and the George, uh, the, the GMF. I'm yeah, the German Marshall Fund. German yeah, Marshall Memorial Fund. It's a long name. <laughs> I always say, for some reason, I always say George Marshall Fund. I don't know why. Like, I don't have a friend named George Marshall. I have no idea. German Marshall Fund. Yes, GMF. Like, what? Why do I always say George? But yeah, German Marshall Fund. Sorry. <laughs> no worries at all. Uh, it's a long name. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, 
I would say if you're passionate about communication or uh, stakeholder engagement and want to work in this area in the future, I would say first uh, start building your academic studies around this topic, which is uh, actually the easy option. <laughs> you just build your, your uh, theoretical knowledge around this. Uh, but it's one part of the puzzle because um, you can also uh, at the same time try um, you know work on building your your professional experiences in this area whether you're taking an internship uh, at a radio station or as a journalist for a small company uh, you can also uh, develop your entrepreneurial projects because uh, at the beginning of my career for example I opened the blog uh, with other experts, uh, uh, with other uh, actually colleagues in the uh, international relations domain, uh, where we were uh, writing articles on US foreign policy uh, to make sure it was understood by European audiences. We didn't have, we were university students actually, but we had a passion for writing. We wanted to become journalists. And uh, I have to say the blog had a lot of uh, resonance. Uh, we used the WordPress. Uh, we got many people uh, actually uh, reading our articles and commenting and sharing. So I think the good thing about communication today is that uh, everyone can be a communicator without being formally employed by a communication company or without being a journalist because the tools are just out there. Uh, and if you manage to exploit them in the right way, you're successful in a way. Uh, so there is a, there's no gatekeepers anymore, right? So with yeah. the emergence also of social media uh, and the down of the gatekeepers, you can be your own, you can become your own journalist actually without being formally employed in this capacity. And I'm sure if you sell this experience to, uh, you know, at the beginning of your career to a communication company or, uh, you know, a radio station, like they would be absolutely, uh, you know, thrilled uh, with the person who, uh, actually who has taken the initiative uh, to do that so uh, don't uh, think about okay I need to get an internship in a company but don't, this is not a road, road this is not a showstopper actually yeah uh, you can do your own uh, project um, I think I would target also communication companies or international organizations that have openings and opportunities in, the, in this area, but also uh, map them and connect with the comms experts on LinkedIn. Uh, people are available to give advice today also over LinkedIn. So um, ask them for opportunity or add them to your, uh, to your, your network, uh, ask them for advice. Uh, you can also think about doing a short course on, on this or that communication topic. So, for example, uh, marketing or public diplomacy or crisis communication. Yeah. And I wanted to conclude by saying that uh, at NATO, we do have different opportunities for students that want to engage um, in uh, what NATO does or are passionate about NATO and want to work in NATO in the future. Uh, we have the uh, internship program, uh, which is out uh, actually both at the at NATO and at the agency, uh, at the NATO Communication and Information Agency. We have the internship program, which is, I think, published, uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, twice a year. Um, so you can apply for it um, as being a university uh, student. And uh, we have also something that was established a few years ago, and I wish I had that when I was a student as well, which is very, very interesting. And it's the Young Professional Program. Actually, this helps you, uh, you know, you, you can apply as a university student and um, you'll be employed by NATO uh, for three years in a policy officer or officer capacity. And you are offered also the opportunity to experience um, uh, also different NATO bodies in a way you're employed, uh, you, you sort of uh, turn 
um, you're not always in the same position uh, but uh, you start for example at the agency then you move to NATO HQ in a different division after one year you move to, to another uh, position in Norfolk uh, yep. for example in the US so it offers you a uh, a sort of diversity of experiences among different NATO bodies that enrich your knowledge about NATO actually and this uh, opens the door actually for uh, future opportunities uh, in NATO. Yeah, uh, no that's great um, and it's uh, it, it definitely is something that um, I think maybe is, is more popular amongst um, like uh, students at European universities I think uh, like some of my colleagues in Canada have a little bit less of an idea of the opportunities that are available. Sometimes we just tend to think, oh, you know, opportunities across the ocean are just unpaid and maybe we'll just hope for the best in like a few years when we have some more experience. But um, it's nice to know that these opportunities are available from like the start of your career. And it's it's something that you can um, look out for doing or, or look out to do once you're, you know, out of school and, and want to start a new adventure. Um, so that's really awesome. Um, I also want to ask, um, there was um, something with the German Marshall Fund that um, you were also mentioning uh, to me that it was available, I think, for younger or students specifically, or I can't, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, you have, as the German Marshall Fund has, uh, I think, three or four fellowships. Okay. So I'm sure uh, that there is one uh, for students as well. I need to check it out to give you the exact details. But uh, look at uh, the breadth of uh, fellowships that they offer uh, because they're, they target different audiences. So you can find your own uh, opportunity there. Uh, also, they do engage, uh, I think they do engage with students as well uh, for one of their flagship events they deliver every year, which event actually they deliver every year, which is the Brussels Forum. Uh, it's a, right. I think it's a gathering um, that um, actually it is, uh, it happens on multiple days, uh, I think three or two or three days, yeah. Uh, and it's um, a strategic, um, a lot of strategic discussions uh, on the different uh, international relations on foreign policy topics. Uh, and um, it is very interesting for a student to also take part uh, into those discussions because you can develop, uh, you know, so many new insights on, on different, uh, on different yeah. areas, but also connect to a broader network of people and who knows, like uh, some opportunities might come out uh, in that particular circumstance. So um, do not, uh, you know, try to, to engage uh, in conferences or like debates and what I've done, and I will close AK because I think we're running out of time. Um, I was volunteering, for me volunteering has always been uh, a critical part of my career. Um, I've volunteered for um, this organization, which is Young Professionals in Foreign, Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, uh, that uh, aims at promoting youth voices in international debate. So uh, I started working for them as a volunteer, uh, as a policy uh, program officer, and I became actually the director of the team uh, for three years. Uh, I've worked for them uh, for three years as a volunteer. So. Um, this experience, it was challenging because I was doing that on top of my job, but it yep. taught me so much uh, about things that I couldn't uh, actually learn at work because I didn't have a team to manage at work, but I mm -hmm. learned team management, for example, or how to run a program of events, 
um, on foreign policy teams. Um, it, it was absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, that's awesome. I remember you telling me about that as well. I think when we had first gotten coffee like a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really cool that um, it was something that, you know, obviously after work, it's like the, the last thing I want to do is think about more work. But I'm sure there was something like if it was something that was interesting enough for you to hold on to and, and engage in that way. That's really awesome that you got that experience and really nice that you were able to, again, take your passions into volunteering after work. I think that's really cool. Thank you. If that gives you ever energy, you should do it. If it depletes your energy, no. <laughs> yes, I agree, and I think that's a that's a very good uh, good way to to wrap this up. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll um, I'll just I just want to say thank you so much for um, joining us today and uh, for the time that you've given um, iAffairs. Uh, I know that this podcast, I mean, just listening to your insights again is helpful to me. So I'm sure for anybody who listens, it will also do the same. Um, so thank you again for joining and uh, your time is much appreciated. Thank you so much, AK. It's been a great opportunity for me. So I would like to thank you all for this. Thank you.